Hey everyone, I'm Leah Borgad, and thank you so much for tuning in to Brain Dump, a podcast where we talk about neuroscience, psychology, and really all the things that go on in my mind. Today's episode, though, we're going to be taking the more scientific route, and we're going to be talking about three things that Stanford taught me recently that completely blew my mind and really changed my perspective on human behavior. So to give you some context, I recently graduated from Stanford. In fact, I graduated like six days ago, so totally new, still feels super weird to say. Um, But in my last quarter, I took a class called Human Behavioral Biology. Now, if anyone out there uh, listening goes to Stanford or went to Stanford, they may have heard of this class. It's one of the most popular classes that Stanford undergrads take. It's taught by Robert Sapolsky, who is a really famous neuroendocrinologist and author. He's been teaching at Stanford for years now, and his class, Human Behavioral Biology, has been loved for years and years. And what's the class about? So it's, of course, about human behavior, thus the name. But what makes it so special is that it studies human behavior from so many different perspectives. So you start off with evolution, then you move on to genetics, and you go through a bunch of other topics like neuroscience, culture, childhood, really everything you can think of. And not only do you go through all of those individually, but then you learn how to incorporate them together to look at bigger topics like sex and aggression and even things like religion and certain mental disorders. So the class is extremely fascinating and I learned a ton. If I had to summarize everything I learned in that class, we would be here for a while. So instead, I thought that I would bring to you three facts from that class that really changed my perspective on what humans are really about and I have no doubt that these things will stick with me for many years to come. So without further ado, let's get into it. So to introduce the first fact, I want to start by asking you guys a question. Do you truly think that you are equally related to your mom and your dad? Science tells us that yes, genetically, We have half of our genes from our mom and half of our genes from our dad. And that happens by the process of fertilization, right? Well, the first fact that human behavioral biology taught me is that it's actually not so simple. And that if you look at the science really closely, for a lot of us, we can actually be slightly more related to our mom than our dad. So if there's any dads out there, I'm really sorry. I know that's not the best news to hear, but don't worry, it's only... A tiny, tiny percent. But I thought that that was so fascinating because the idea that you're equally related to your parents is so intuitive, right? But it's actually not fully true. So let's get into the details of that because I'm sure many of you are confused. There are a few different factors of biology that can contribute to this unequal inheritance. The first is this piece of DNA called mitochondrial DNA. So if you've taken a basic biology class, you should know that mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. But where did mitochondria come from? So it turns out that before they were just a component of the cell, mitochondria years and years and years ago were actually their own individual organism. They were just like a tiny little 
bacteria. And what happened is that one day, one of these little mitochondrial bacteria got captured by a bigger eukaryotic cell, a type of cell. And through evolution, that bacteria got incorporated into the eukaryotic cell and became what we now know as the mitochondria. And so because the mitochondria used to be its own organism, it naturally has its own DNA. So over the course of evolution, a lot of that mitochondrial DNA has kind of become mixed in with our main DNA. But even today, there's a very small amount of DNA in our bodies that exclusively belongs to the mitochondria. It's something like less than 1% of our total DNA. Now, how does this apply to what we were talking about regarding fertilization? So when eggs are formed from the mother, not only does the egg contain around half of the DNA that the baby will inherit, but it also includes many mitochondria. On the other hand, sperm has the other half of the DNA, but it doesn't have any mitochondria. In other words, all of your mitochondrial DNA is solely inherited from your mother. Already there, we can see that moms kind of went out in terms of how much DNA they're contributing to the child. It gets more complicated, though, when you bring in this concept of imprinted genes. Now, I am not going to pretend like I'm an expert on imprinted genes because they're extremely complicated. And the other thing is that imprinted genes have been especially studied in other species. However, we have been able to find around 100 genes that are imprinted in humans. So first of all, what do I even mean by imprinted genes? These are genes that are extremely special because depending on whether you inherit this gene from your mom or your dad, it'll actually have different effects on the child. And these imprinted genes are not inherited equally in the child. So there could be children that get all of their imprinted genes from their mom or all of their imprinted genes from their dad or like some sort of unequal ratio. And this will depend on the individual. But again, we see that it's not perfectly 50-50. And I'm sure you're wondering what these imprinted genes do. It's actually quite complicated. So I can give you maybe one example. I don't want to get too much into it though. But what we tend to see as a whole is that the imprinted genes that are inherited from the dad are genes that tend to be associated with enhancing the growth of the fetus. Or if you're giving birth to a daughter, preparing her body for having offspring. On the other hand, maternal imprinted genes, when inherited, tend to lead to restrictions in fetal growth. That's kind of an evolutionary tactic on the female's part because, of course, for the men, they want to reproduce, right? They want to pass off their genes, but they don't have to actually carry the baby. They don't have to take on the energy of carrying a baby. Meanwhile, women, of course, want to reproduce as well, but they also have to balance their present survival with their future needs. That's why the paternal genes will tend to only focus on creating great environments for the baby, whereas the maternal gene will kind of balance that out by creating effects that are necessarily not as beneficial for fetal growth. I hope that makes sense. If you have more questions about that, you can follow our Instagram, comment on there, DM me. Our Instagram is braindump.podcast. 
And the last piece of this puzzle that makes this concept of 50-50 inheritance so much more complicated than it seems is the unequal inheritance of these things called transcription factors. If you've taken a genetics class before, you probably have heard of transcription factors. If not, transcription factors are actually the proteins that determine whether or not genes get turned on or off. So just because you have a gene does not necessarily mean that it's going to be activated. That's where the transcription factor comes in. It's its job to tell the body, okay, yes, have the gene turn on and have its effects take place. So in a way, there's a strong argument that can be made that the transcription factors are almost more important than the genes themselves. Transcription factors are essential for genes to even carry out their functions. So how do transcription factors play into this concept of unequal inheritance? To give you guys a basic summary, when fertilization happens, all of those proteins come from the mother and the egg because the sperm do not come with any of those transcription factor proteins. Of course, the dad also contributes genes that can create transcription factors later. But when we're solely talking about the moment of fertilization, it is only the mom that is contributing transcription factors. So because of that, again, the argument can be made that at least at the beginning, the mother has more power over what goes on in the offspring. So I find that so fascinating. And based on the combination of transcription factors that the mother gives to the offspring, there can be ton of effects for the offspring later on. Things like cancer risk, and these things can also be multi-generational. So not only will this affect your offspring, but they could affect the offspring's offspring, etc. So that was everything I wanted to say for the first fact that blew my mind. This idea that we don't necessarily get half of our genes from our mom and the other half from our dad. Oftentimes we get a little bit more from our mom and you know, even then there are exceptions. Things can be unequal in a variety of ways. And so, yeah, I just encourage you to think about that a little bit and the fact that our lives are not so determined by these really intuitive numerical values. So hopping into our next fact, I want to get to this false notion that certain behaviors are inevitable in people because it's in their genes. Or on the other hand, that certain things that people do are just a product of their environment, how they were raised, and so they don't know any other way. They can't have known any other way. The science shows that it's actually a combination of genes and environment. The proper term for this is gene-environment interactions. These are actually everywhere in human behavior, and they dictate so many aspects of how we behave. So I think the best way to really describe gene-environment interactions is to give you guys a few examples. Again, there are so many out there, so I'm just going to go over some of the ones that really stuck out to me, but I encourage you guys to try to explore other interactions in your life, whether it's by observing others and thinking critically about how they behave or even doing research about this topic because there's so much to explore. So one of the examples I want to talk about is 
depression. There's a lot of studies around depression, especially in the past few years as mental illness has really taken the forefront as a problem that is being more legitimized. And so people are finding environmental factors to depression as well as more neuronal or genetic components. And so what we find with a lot of cases of depression is that, again, it's a combination of how you were born and what genes you got, plus how you were raised and in what environment you grew up in. Without both of these components, you're much less likely to develop depression. So getting into it a little bit deeper, depression is pretty well known to be associated with this chemical messenger in the brain called serotonin. And I'm sure that word rings a bell for a lot of you. A lot of people call it like the happy chemical. And so if you look at serotonin, the serotonin gene has two different versions. And if you look at the studies on depression, people have found that one of the two serotonin gene variants is more likely to lead to depression. But it's only more likely to lead to depression if the person was raised in a stressful environment that had a lot of adversity. Anything from physical and mental abuse to a major loss like the death of a parent. If you get a genetic test right now and you find out that you have quote-unquote the bad variant of serotonin but you had a great childhood, your likelihood of depression is just as low as somebody who had the other variant but had different upbringings. So again, you need to have both components. Another example is this gene called FADS2. I personally don't know that much about the gene, but again, it has multiple versions. And there is studies out there that show that if you have this one particular gene variant, plus you're breastfed as a child, you actually see a higher average IQ in those kids. On average, it's about seven points higher, which is pretty substantial. Another quick example is this other gene called MAOB. There are different versions. And if you have this one particular variant in combination with childhood adversity, like living in a high-risk environment, living in an environment that was abusive, the combination of those two can lead to aggressive or antisocial behavior as an adult. This one is actually even more complex because this particular variant can have different effects on how specifically you behave as an adult depending on the environment that you were born into. If it was a really abusive environment, then you're going to have a lot of aggression growing up and you may even have a criminal record. In another setting, I'm actually not totally sure what environment this is, but having that same dramatic profile actually increases the likelihood of you being a flasher in your adulthood. Um, if you guys want to learn more about that, I can definitely try to look more into the study, but just a super interesting example of gene-environment interactions. And one last example I wanted to bring up because it ties into a common stereotype in society is the combination of having two X chromosomes, aka being born female biologically, and being in an environment that's less gender equal leads to larger differences in math skills. So the reason I bring up a stereotype is, as I'm sure many of you know, there is a stereotype that boys do better in math than girls or boys do better in STEM than girls on average. 
but it actually depends a lot on the environment. It really doesn't have much to do with having two X chromosomes unless you were born in a country that's more unequal when you look at gender equality. The way people have figured this out is by looking at differences in math scores across multiple societies ranging from the most unequal to the most gender equal society, which is Iceland. And not only did they find smaller differences in test scores among the more gender equal societies, but they actually found that females scored better than males in gender equal societies. So again, oftentimes when we talk about a behavior or a skill linked to genetics, most if not all of the time, it's not that simple. You have to look at the gene combined with the environment. And the way you do that is by studying that gene across different environments and seeing what result you get. And the other thing is that it's not always one gene plus one environment. You can have multiple environmental genetic interactions. There can be like two or three genes plus one or two environments leading to one certain result. You know, it's not just one plus one equals the result. There can be a lot of different components in there. So that was gene environment interactions. Now, without further ado, let's jump into our third and final fact. So I'm not going to lie, this last fact actually kind of upset me when I learned about it. I'm a big believer of our thoughts control our emotions, which control our bodies and our actions. A lot of the times I would say that is true. You know, I'm a big fan of mindfulness and I know that if I control my thoughts and emotions, that has a physiological effect on how my body functions. But there's this other theory called the James Lang James Lange. I think it's James Lang. I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. I probably should have researched that beforehand, but we're here. So the James Lang theory actually says the opposite, which is that the body can actually tell the brain how to feel. The way it does that is that as the brain scans the body for signals, it can pick up certain things happening and from that assume that we must feel a certain way. So, for example, if the brain picks up that we're breathing slow, it might say, oh, I guess we're, we're in a relaxed state right now, so you'll feel more relaxed. That makes sense. With meditation, again, that is a component of it. It forces you to breathe slower. So after a while, you find yourself less stressed. So that is an example of the James Lang theory. Or if the brain picks up that your heart's beating fast, it might say, oh, I'm excited. Or maybe I'm scared. You know, it depends. But the more obvious way to think about it, I guess, for me, is that I'm excited, therefore my heart beats fast. But it could actually be the opposite. My heart beats fast, therefore I'm excited. So this idea that it's not always the brain that controls the body and the body can actually directly influence our thoughts, that really blew my mind. I kind of knew it intuitively, but its implications are huge. And I just want to go over a couple of studies that we talked about in relation to this theory that I found both mind-blowing but also kind of hilarious. So the first one was a study where I honestly don't know how they did this ethically, but it's a pretty well-known study where they took a bunch of participants and without the participants knowing, they injected them with epinephrine, which is basically like a slow-acting adrenaline. They had no conscious awareness that there was essentially adrenaline running through their veins. Then they placed the participants in a waiting room. But like many stereotypical psychological or scientific studies out there, 
The waiting room was actually the experiment itself. They actually placed the participant in the room with another fake participant, and the fake participant was instructed to either act calmly, so, you know, just chillin', to be negatively aroused, so to show really visible impatience or even anger. Maybe they're frustrated that it's taking super long or who knows, or they could be positively aroused. They show a ton of enthusiasm and excitement about the study. They can't wait to volunteer and be a part of this scientific endeavor. And what they found in the participants that were injected with epinephrine is that those people actually matched the behavior of the fake participant. So if they were stuck in the room with the calm participant, they were calm. If they saw someone getting angry, because that adrenaline was putting them on edge, they got angry. And if they saw someone more excited, then they got really excited. So again, this chemical in our bodies is having a direct effect on our thoughts and emotions. I thought that was a super cool study. The other one involves Botox, believe it or not. One common thing that people might know, this again goes back to like mindfulness, tricking yourself into being relaxed and happy thing. If you ask someone sad to force themselves to smile, you'll naturally start feeling happier. I don't know if you guys have heard that before. I personally find it really hard to do it when I'm sad, but it actually helps considerably. And the study that I'm going to talk about is actually sort of the opposite of that, which is when you're injected with Botox, it basically reduces the nuances in your facial expressions, right? Because you're trying to maintain this face, and so it prevents you from moving it as much. Again, you're, you're changing your bodily functions in that one area. And what studies have shown is that not only do other people perceive people with Botox as being less emotionally expressive, but even those who have gotten Botox, on average, report themselves as being less emotionally intense than someone without Botox. So again, the body, because it's more rigid and less able to have these nuanced emotional expressions, tell the brain that we're just less emotional people. So I found that super interesting. And I wonder if when people get plastic surgery or get Botox, that's in their contract or in their brief before getting the surgery. If any of you have gotten Botox, let me know. Um, probably unlikely though. So those were the three facts that really blew my mind this past quarter at Stanford. I hope that you guys found them just as fascinating as I did. And if you had a favorite fact, definitely let me know. Like I mentioned earlier on in this podcast, we do have an Instagram. It's braindump.podcast. And if you guys want to go on there and comment on some pictures, even DM me telling me your favorite fact, I would love to interact with you. And if you want to support this podcast further, you could subscribe so you don't miss the next episodes and follow our Instagram, of course. And, you know, besides telling me your favorite fact, if you have any general feedback on the podcast, anything you want to hear more of or something that you think could be improved, you know, this is only episode two of Brain Dump and I am looking for different ways to improve it and spice it up. So open to any suggestions, concerns, comments, whatever. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for tuning in to Brain Dump. I'll see you guys next time.